Welcome to another episode of Making Disciples Every Day. Really excited today to have Mark Matlock on the podcast. Um, Mark's just a brilliant guy. I've been working with youth pastors, students, and parents for more than two decades, spoken to more than a million teenagers. He's the principal at Wisdom Works. It's a consulting firm that helps Christian leaders leverage the transforming power of wisdom to accomplish their mission. He's a former executive director for Youth Specialties and creator of the Planet Wisdom Student Conferences. He's the author of a number of books, including Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, and that's primarily what we're going to be talking about with him today, but also Smart Faith, Loving God with All Your Mind. I wrote that with J.P. Moreland, one of my favorite philosophers of all time, and a former chemist like myself, just love J.P. Moreland. I wrote books, Real World Parents, Christian Parenting for Families Living in the Real World, uh, what does God want from me? So just a, a, n- a number of titles. Uh, so it's a really great thinker. Really excited to have him with us today. All right. So, so Mark, uh, just got done with your bio, but since you're here with us in person, tell us a little more about you, maybe about your uh, family, uh, any personal things that are worth sharing, like hobbies, uh, just what interests, passions do you have, where you're from, those sort of things. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I went to Biola University, and uh, during my my last year there, I was introduced to a guy named Dawson McAllister, who was doing these large-scale discipleship events for teenagers around the country, and he actually invited me to join him in that. So I moved to Texas, where his operations were based, um, and uh, have lived there ever since, 1991. So I've been in Texas for 28 years now. That's great. Met my wife. We have two adult uh, children, uh, one that's in college, the other one that's uh, uh, just graduated from college. We've been married for 27 years this December. So, yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're loving life right now. We're empty nesters, and it's kind of fun to be on that side. But, yeah. you know, we're raising adults, and that's a whole new thing in today's day and age. Yeah, good. So you got the full perspective then, uh, raising as children, as babies, and now even as adults, how are we still discipling our families? Uh, just really excited about the conversation today. Yeah, I definitely say my views and thoughts have changed over time. You know, I've worked yeah. with teenagers for more than 25 years. And um, so seeing that as a youth minister to a adult volunteer and a youth group to actually being a parent, uh, those perspectives change over time. Yeah, exactly. Can't imagine having no kids myself, but having been one, I can imagine the uh, the stressors involved and uh, certainly the persistent challenge of raising kingdom people, uh, no doubt about it. What originally got you interested in, in cultural studies, anthropological issues, just that, that general field? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I was an intercultural studies major at Biola University with an interdisciplinary kind of art program integrated into that. (laughs) And I really, to be honest, just really got fascinated about what makes people who they are. Mm -hmm. Culture are the learned and shared values, beliefs, objects of a group of people. And notoriously difficult to find, but that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And uh, that kind of was interesting to me and it really served me well as I was working with teenagers because at that time, uh, organization uh, companies like MTV were actually hiring cultural anthropologists to go and live amongst teenagers and look at them as a uh, 
as more of a cultural group and look at them as a kind of an anthropological phenomenon. And so it, it was really helpful during those years to have some background in that and to think about generations, think about how technology was shaping a culture through some different lenses than just the faith lens. Obviously, I've been a, a Bible teacher, expositor, you know, in working with teenagers most of my life as an author. But um, but that that anthropology really did help uh, me understand how to think about that in the lived context. That's great. I mean, it, is, it is interesting uh, where the Lord takes us and how originally it might just be a general interest in just not even understanding how the Lord is going to use it. And it's just those first couple of steps of obedience. Uh, so we're certainly thankful for that because we get to uh, take all that knowledge from you now and incorporate it into our lives. Yeah, don't don't miss what you just said. You said those couple steps of, of obedience because that's really what the Christian life comes down to, right? Is obedience. And if I look at my journey, you know, when I was in college, I went to Biola, not really knowing exactly what my major was. I thought it was going to be film and I was going to go into the film industry. Okay. And uh, went to chapel one day and they talked about a group going to India. And I thought to myself, I think God wants me to go to India, you know, and I, I felt a strong responsibility to go. And so okay. I, I went and uh, on that journey, I actually the guy there said, Hey, do you, does anybody here do like magic tricks or anything like that? We could like do assemblies <laughs> at schools. And I said, Oh yeah, I do some magic tricks and things like that. So, <laughs> so I, 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 when I was a kid, I used to do this a lot. So I pulled some of that stuff out. And then as we were studying the people of India and I just got really fascinated, they're just a, amazing people. Um, and I was like, wow, this, I, I was getting introduced to the, the intercultural studies staff and faculty at our school and was like, this is what God wants me to do. And so I thought this is where I'm going. So every step away in our lives, you know, we think we're, we're just doing, you know, we're not just making random choices. We're, we're bringing our life into obedience of God. And it's led to some interesting places, including one day sitting in my garage thinking, you know what, we should really do some research on teenagers. Nobody's really doing research on, how teenagers are sharing their faith, what non-Christian teenagers think about receiving their faith. So I thought, well, who does research like this? And I was like, ah, Barna does. So we just, I literally just looked up their phone number and um, we didn't <laughs> have the, really the internet wasn't a big deal at that time very, very much. Yeah. And I called Barna's office and Dave Kinneman, who had just started working there oh, yeah. off of an internship, he answered the phone and uh, he and I began a friendship that's now extended over 20 years and leads to this book, Faith for Exiles, that we're here today. So literally, it's every day just saying, Lord, how do you want me to be obedient? And then seeing where that takes you, because let me tell you, you have no idea the places that God will take you when you just say these little things that seem insignificant, like, you know, learning a couple magic tricks, and it changes the course of your life. It's amazing. So good. Yeah, really good testimony. Uh, so let's dive right in because you brought up the teenagers a few times and I think that'll be of interest to those who will be listening. How can they be better equipped to disciple their children? Uh, so what have you found with regard to how busyness and technology is affecting uh, particularly our young people, but then I mean all generations, but uh, like we say in particular, our young people. 
Well, let's just take a step back and look at what's going on in our world today. If you look at most of our countries, they're all going through a, a sense of nationalism, right? Where they're kind of trying to understand their identity in changing times. So we're all being affected in different ways by just sea change. It's not just something that's happening in the United States. It's happening in lots of countries uh, around the world where they're, they're going through this the sense of how do we fit into the world that we're in right now? It's changing and so fast. Is that fast. common historically in your studies and just accelerated now, or is this a new thing? No, I think it's something, this is you know kind of my observation, but it, it is relatively new over the last maybe five, five, seven, five to 10 years. Mm. And um, what that signals to me in the United States, especially for the church, is what David and I in our book, uh, Faith for Exiles, talk about a shift from Jerusalem to Babylon. And we call it really digital Babylon. But we lived, many of us, in a world where things were kind of homogenized. No matter what uh, ethnicity we are, what neighborhoods we grew up in, we were kind of only exposed to the people within a certain radius of, of where we lived and, and did life. Right. The internet has disrupted that. It's allowed us to connect with people simultaneously uh, in really different parts of the world uh, and uh, have an incredible amount of information available to us. Uh, it's given us the ability to project our opinions that we would normally have maybe kept to ourselves, put them out there uh, in a raw form without them being thought through and carefully crafted uh, that often would happen if you were to write a paper or write a letter to somebody. Um, so what's happened is we've got a, a complicated and accelerated culture. It's no longer the feeling of homogeneity, right? We've always been a diverse people right. in the United States, but yeah. our, our experience was more homogenized, right? That's right? Regardless of where you were, regardless of your ethnicity or anything like that, it, you, you grew up in, you know, I mean, I, I talked to my friends, uh, you know, our, our church that was predominantly white was saying we need to be more reflective of the diverse community around us. And we met with a black church and they were saying, we're going through the same thing. <laughs> we're trying to figure out how to be more diverse uh, because we're predominantly black. And we thought, Oh, that's interesting. And so it was, you know, we're going through this, 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 this pace change. And so discipleship looks really different in Jerusalem where you have kind of a, an entire society that's oriented around the principles of God to Babylon, which is this frenetic, market-driven, fast-paced, pluralistic uh, culture. And we're kind of dealing with the shock of that. And discipleship looks different in that context. And so I think as a church, we've kind of struggled trying to understand what that is. That's great. So the book, Faith for Exiles, uh, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in a Digital Babylon, uh, I'm going to link to it in our show notes, but walk us through some of these five ways and how maybe what what would discipleship look like if it were still a Jerusalem? Just sort of an idealistic version because we know, you know it's not always static, but then what we need to become to disciple people better now in Babylon. Well, the first thing we need to realize is we're probably not going to go back to the way it was. Our experience has fundamentally changed. I don't think it's going to return. So I think that's why you're seeing this groundswell of, you know, people trying to manage this change in sometimes a very outward way. But I'm going to say two words, and these two words are really important. 
screens disciple. Mm. So we have seen every aspect of our culture, business uh, change because of the internet. Um, Publishing's changed. uh, Stock markets changed. The transportation's changed. Everything's changed as a result of the internet. And one of the questions that we have is, well, how has that affected our faith? And it's no surprise that we see one of the largest dropout problems in the church happen at the same time that we see this internet culture. And I think part of the problem is as a church, we haven't identified the situation correctly. We've seen uh, the internet as um, disruptive, but we haven't realized that what's really happening is screens are discipling. They are shaping the souls of our lives and our children's lives in particularly before we ever get a chance to interact and engage with them. So for instance, I'm, I'm talking to one of the young men in my small group, right? And he's throwing out some arguments about why he doesn't believe Christianity is real. And I'm thinking, man, the thinking that this kid is throwing at me is way above his like skill level, (laughs) right? Like he's giving me some arguments that are next level. So I wrote down a few of his phrases that he was sharing and I actually Googled them. And when I did, I came to this website, which was kind of a a website on uh, secular humanism. And it was basically guides on arguing Christians about the legitimacy of their faith. And it was kind of like, kind of like Christians have books on apologetics yeah. Uh, to help defend yeah. Christianity. These yep. were the same kind there. of guides designed to help an atheist uh, or a humanist attack Christianity. And what I realized is normally if this kid had doubts, if this kid had questions about his faith, he would have come to me and he would have said, Hey, Mark, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me think through this? And I'd have a chance to walk with him through his doubt. But now he's going directly to his screen and he's uh, spending so much time that he was able to absorb and internalize all of these arguments and have a a pretty incredible conversation with me um, about why he was thinking that he was going to walk away from Christianity. And so I missed an opportunity to disciple him because the screens were discipling him already. And as parents, you know, I... We could have been look I, as a youth leader, as parents, we could be looking at our kids going, well, they're going to church every week. They're participating in these activities, but we don't know what's going on in the internal dialogue of our kids. That's something that they're doing with their screen. And we have to do more to be involved in their lives, asking these deeper questions, surfacing these things so that we can be a part of the discipling process before they're being discipled by somebody else. Does that make sense? No, that's great. And, and I'll affirm it. Just this month, so um, just this previous month, I had at least four conversations with everyone ranging from high school age, I think sophomore, all the way up until maybe mid-40s, all of whom had already watched a number of YouTube videos and read a few websites before they got to the point where they were so disrupted in their understanding that they then came to ask me. And they already had this entire baseline and foundation built in that I had to, you know, sort of walk in and, you know, mix and match and move things around 
to sort of build it back up. So you're spot on and I'm seeing it just so regularly. People come in with tons of, I would say, data because they're, they're consuming a ton of it online. I mean, this is the first place to go is a general Google search or a YouTube video on pretty much anything you, you want to learn. Yeah, this research project that Dave and I did that is the foundation for Faith for Exiles, we estimate based on our interaction with these uh, young people that the average uh, 23-year-old, 15 to 23-year-old, experiences about 2,700 plus hours of screen time each year. Wow. When we ask them about spiritual content that they're taking in through the same channels, they tell us that they think that's about 290 hours. That's for the average churchgoer. So they're basically being, you know, outmode about 10 to one in terms of spiritual content to other content that they're taking on in their screens. So we have to realize the effect. Now I want to be really clear. I am not an anti screen person. Um, I, when my kids were going into middle school, that was just the time that smartphones were starting to be available. And it was a, you know, we were the first generation of parents to ever have to try to figure out what do we do with this? Right. And there are two schools of thought, right? One is, hey, this is the way things are going. Our kids need to know how to navigate life as digital citizens. That's one philosophy. The other philosophy was just keep them away from it as long as possible. And I knew I had a problem when I gave my son a phone when he was 12 and said, look, you can't text on it until you're 14. And he just threw it on the table and said, then what's the point of having a phone? (laughs) And I knew at that point in time, things have changed. And in a year after that, the smartphones, the iPhone came out and uh, that changed everything. And so very interesting to see the acceleration of these things as a parent in real time, seeing it, you know, my kids are kind of a laboratory around that. And it was fascinating to see that, but I realized we need new spiritual disciplines around these new tools that we have because we've never experienced them before. And, you know, clocks were originally invented to help us uh, remember to pray, Uh, but then they become something that runs our life. Right. And so we have to always look at technology and say, how are we taking this captive to the obedience of Christ? It's not that it's evil or bad in and of itself. It's just that we have to figure out how to protect our soul in the process. That's good. Man, you're right, because it is pervasive, it's ubiquitous uh, in our lives, and we're all exposed to it, even if you don't want to be. I was just walking down the street the other day and glanced in a restaurant window and all the TVs were going with tons of advertisements on all of them. Uh, Even when you try to avoid it, you can't in many ways. So if screens are discipling, what is our response as people call to equip the body or as parents call to equip their kids? Uh, How do we equip these things for kingdom purposes, for disciple-making purposes? Well, one of the interesting things in the research that we did was we surveyed 18 to 29-year-olds who at some point in time in their life had identified as a Christian. So this made about probably about 83% or so of that population. People don't believe it, but when you ask the average American Uh, Do you consider yourself to be Christian, Jewish, or of another religious faith? Uh, About 83% of the population will identify as a Christian. Wow. 
Now, we know that doesn't mean that they truly understand the tenets of Christianity. So what are they thinking when they answer that way? Uh, I think that's part of the changing norm of a Christian of the United States being a Christian nation. A lot of people identify uh, with their faith, even if they don't really understand what that means. Sure. Um, so we, we asked some other questions to probe, but 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 of those who said they identify as a Christian at some point in time in their life, um, we were able to identify four different kinds of categories of uh, young people. Um, the first group are we call prodigals. Those are people who said, I identified as a Christian at some point in time in my life, but I no longer do. Now, seven years ago, we did a, a project uh, called You Lost Me. David wrote a book uh, with that title. In that, there was about 9 to 11% of the population that would identify as I once was a Christian. I no longer consider myself to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. That number is now about 22%. Okay. So we're seeing a rise in that. And other researchers are seeing that same change. But for us to be able to be using kind of the same methods and practices and see that with the same questions, pretty pretty eye-opening. The second group are what we call nomads. Nomads are people who still identify as being a Christian, but they're not really connected to a, a faith family. And their faith isn't really central to their, their life. They make about 30% of the population. So a little more than half yeah. uh, are, are really, ide- you know, have identified as a Christian at one point in time or currently do, but presently they're not really doing anything to nurture their faith in a community. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Then we have two other groups. The other group is what we call the habitual churchgoer. They make up 38% of our survey audience. Yeah. They are habitual churchgoers. We call them habituals because they attend church with frequency, but they're not really involved in anything other than worship services. And we ask them additional questions. It doesn't really appear that faith is central to their life, their decision-making. Sometimes they don't really understand even some of the fundamentals of their faith. This is a huge group that we as a church need to be discipling because they are coming to church. They are in the walls, they're in our community right now, but for whatever reason, uh, it's not going very deep into their lives. And so this is a huge uh, group that we have an opportunity to reach. Yeah, uh, and then so then, in, in your research, these people seem genuinely uh, open. Were there any questions that provoked them towards that way? Like they're actually wanting to know and just not getting it? Or are they? is it one of those where I'm here because... I'm totally dependent upon my parents and they drag me here. We're, we're not really sure. Remember these are 18 to 29 right, right. year olds. So some yeah. of them are, are a lot older. Um, and you know, in States like Texas and in the Bible belt, you know, we'll see a lot of millennials sometimes going to church, but their reasons may not be sure. because they're really active in their faith as much as it is. Hey, this is a safe place for me to meet other people my age. We've always gone to church. It's just something people do. So those are things that we have to be really careful yeah. of. Remember, it goes back to that whole thing of what's really going on in the inside of the heart. Yeah. You can't just look at some external behaviors and go, they're okay. That's right. And your point is they're present. <laughs> they're present with us in the faith. Let's- so, so they're one of our greatest opportunities, right? Um, and then the resilient disciples make up only 10% of that group. But this is the group that we really wanted to dive deeper with. And so we asked all four of these groups 
But we asked them a series of questions about the churches they grew up in, their families, their own relationship and journey with Jesus. And what we found was five things, five practices that really stood out in forming these resilient disciples. Like if you were to, to put their numbers up against the habituals, the nomads and the prodigals, you would see distinct difference in how they answered these questions around these five areas that set them apart. And we believe that these are five things you always have to be careful in research because sure. just because you can see a pattern doesn't necessarily mean that you can reverse engineer and cause that pattern to make change. But this gives us some really good insight to think about. And it rings it's, it's true. It's a starting place and it sounds like it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So the first thing that we saw was that um, these resilient disciples had had a real experience with Jesus, not just in their past, but in their present, their prayer life. They're, they talked about Jesus as a real person that they interacted with. Um, and so it was evident that uh, unlike the nomads who'd walked away from the church, uh, these people couldn't do that because somehow they were connected to Jesus through the church, right? And so that was really interesting. Of these resilience too, one of the things we found is that they tended to put their trust in Jesus for their salvation a little bit later in life. So um, not still in their elementary school years, but on the, the right. older side of those years as opposed to the younger side. That was really interesting to us because it, it made us wonder, you know, are we in some way socializing our children to Christianity rather than really helping them meet Christ yeah. and understand and know Jesus? We and maybe, a little older, a little more aware, a little more cognizant of the implications that's interesting. Yeah, it's possible. You know, um, you know, we don't know enough to be able to say that with the cert certitude, but it was just a trend that we saw that these resilience uh, compared to the other groups had put said that they put their trust in Jesus uh, at a later time in their life um, than the other groups uh, when they had first considered themselves a, a Christian. So that was interesting. Their prayer life, the joy that they experience in being a Christian is off the chart different. So that's something really important because I think as, as a Christian leader, as a pastor, I would say, well, our church does this pretty well, but maybe we're not doing as well as we think. Maybe we're taking some things for granted. Yeah. Maybe there's a cultural form of Christianity that's more pervasive than true leaning and trusting into Jesus Christ. Uh, and demonstrating that as the essence and central tenet of our faith. We started this podcast talking about obedience, that idea of just waking up and saying, Lord, what is it that you've given for me to do today? And, and that leads us to the next thing. And so, uh, so that was pretty profound. The second thing were, were meaningful relationships. Now, once again, a lot of church leaders, I would say this of my own church that I'm a you know, lay pastor in, that you know, I would say, well, we provide people opportunities for relationships, but are we doing it as well as we could? Because what we find is these resilient disciples have people that they don't just want to be with, but they actually want to model their life after. And what I found in the life of my own children was how important the church was to their development. So even though I've been this disciple of teenagers my whole life, 
when it came to my own kids, I needed, I was their parent. So I needed other men and women in their life to help them navigate their spiritual walk. In fact, they still lean into those relationships to this day. Sometimes it's like, I don't want to listen to dad, even though all their friends might, they, they're like, I don't want to take this from my own mom and dad, you know? So they're looking for other people. And that's where your own town, you know that. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And uh, Mark DeVries, who's another kind of person who, who looks at the structure of church and discipleship says, you know, we're really building a scaffolding, a constellation of adults around our children to give them support. And we definitely saw that to be the case among these resilience by double digit differences between the habituals, the nomads and the prodigals. So it's a significant thing. In fact, if there is one thing that a parent could do uh, who is listening to this podcast, it would be start inviting other Christian families uh, out to lunch, have them over to your house start exposing your kids to the broader community because you never know which one of those introduction relationships might be the one that helps them in a moment uh, when they, when they really need it. Uh, A third thing was um, counter uh, was cultural discernment. Uh, We found that these resilient disciples knew how to discern the culture and in faith for exiles, we go through and actually break out, some of the actual questions that we asked and and look at some of those practices and principles. But one of the things we have to help our kids do is not just prevent them from viewing certain material. Like we can control their screen time. We can put filters on things. We can tell them you can't watch those programs, but we have to help our kids do is discern because screens disciple, we're not always going to be able to be in between those screens and our kids. Right. So giving them the muscles to be able to actually do that work on their own is really important. And that means as we consume media as parents, so we're asking questions about it. Uh, the music that we listen to, we ask questions about the meaning of songs. We ask questions about the television programs and the movies that we're watching. These things help build, build those discernment muscles uh, in the minds of our kids and are really powerful when they're on their own and having to discern these things uh, by themselves. And in the book, we actually give some really, really practical tools around that. Um, I have three questions. I'll give them to you right now that I, that I would always use as kind of anchor questions. Um, One was just questions about where God shows up in the media. Is God a part of the story at all? Um, is there any acknowledgement, prayer, mention of him? You know, a lot of times it's just, man, all people do is curse or swear in the name of God. Well, that that's discernment. Even just bringing your kids' attention to that is powerful. The second thing is, what claims is this making about life? You know, uh, a lot of times in, in movies and stories, um, sex is the equivalent of love, right? And right. so that is used to show intimacy, but to be able to say, you know, this, this movie kind of makes the, this argument that intimacy is found through sexual activity, but you know that that's not really what the Bible tells us about intimacy. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is something that, uh, that makes sex uh, better <laughs> and more meaningful, but it's not the entry point for intimacy having that conversation with our kids can be really powerful and it gives them those cultural discernment muscles to do that. And then the third question is where is hope and redemption found? 
what is the saving grace in this uh, this song, this story, this movie, this piece of television? And is there hope or is there no hope? Uh, these are powerful levers by which we integrate the word of God into the media that our kids are taking in all around us. Yeah, that's, that's so good. So one, I mean, boy, just two back to back things you could do right away is start inviting other families and believers into your life because those parents might have a bigger impact on your kids than you. And then two, just start asking these questions of your children, teach them to ask, teach them to ask these questions. It's so good. Very, very important. When we start looking for kids. these things. We start seeing them more uh, regularly and, and we really do start building a foundation for faith. So you sort of have your scaffolding of these other adults discipling your kids and you have your foundation in these anchor questions. That's good stuff. Well, we call these, these exiles, we call them resilient disciples. And we think about people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther. Right. Um, and we, we look at them and we say, look at how God used them in these extraordinary times. But one thing we know is they really understood the culture that they were living in. And, uh, you know, Dan, Daniel, you know, tells us in the first chapter that he studied the Babylonian literature and culture yeah. and he understood and he knew it. So it's not just a thing of saying black and white, this is secular, this is sacred. It's helping people see the sacred in the secular or the longing for the sacred in the secular uh, or helping them see the absence of the sacred Excellent. in the secular. Yep. It, it's not just about drawing these lines. And I think that it's really critical for um, parents to understand that because that's how we build this resilience in our, in our disciples. And that's what's needed in this changing and chaotic time. There's so much change going on that we don't just need a strong faith. We need a resilient faith. And what we mean by that is a strong, um, you know, something that's strong, like take a, a pyramid, for example, is a kind of a classic example, but a pyramid is something that is withstood the, you know, the test of time and centuries it was built to last. But if somebody were to, you know, detonate an explosive or something, you know, in the pyramids or start dismantling the pyramids, um, it, they would be destroyed, right? Yeah. They, would, they yeah. would not rebuild themselves. So that strong thing, even though it's very strong, it still has a certain fragility to it, right? And the same thing can happen with our kids. We can isolate them from the world. We can put all these barriers and walls around them. We can make sure they know lots of Bible. That might be a really strong core, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's resilient. Resilience means bending, not breaking. Yeah. Um, means bending and becoming stronger because you're bending, kind of like when you're doing reps uh, with dumbbells or something like that. Uh, you're not breaking your arm, but you are tearing muscle. You are progressing right, right. it, and it's actually yeah. becoming stronger in the process. Yeah. And and if you look at a, a forest, if you took that same explosive device that took out the pyramid and you put it in a rainforest, uh, that rainforest is probably going to come back because it's resilient. It's a biodynamic system. So we want to have a faith that is resilient like that, that when change comes, when doubt comes, because it will come, and even more so today than ever before, any other generation will experience more doubt than 
uh, any other generation prior, just because of the, the nature of the questions being asked in our world. We want our kids' faith to actually go stronger through that journey, not fall apart and collapse. And that's really helpful language because so often in the scriptures, we see it's about finishing the race. It's about enduring. We read in Revelation, it's about those who overcome. Uh, it's about that resiliency and progression and sanctification that really marks one as a believer. Uh, maybe not so much. I mean, as, as important as the initial experience is, uh, it is really the endurance to the end that marks one uh, as a believer. Resiliency is really powerful language around that concept. Yeah, so those are just, you know, a, a handful of the things that we found that can really help in growing and building disciples. And I would just say this, that if you sit there and say to yourself, oh, I kind of already do those things, or we've got this, know that our research indicates that we, if only 10% of resilient disciples have truly experienced these things to a degree of change, we don't have this. We're not doing as well as we could we can do better. So whatever we're doing, we need to continue to do it deeper, um, stronger, in more innovative ways than we presently are. That's wonderful. Uh, boy, there's some really helpful next steps, some good theological and biblical framework uh, for understanding technology screens and just really interfacing with culture. And so what I hear you saying is that as parents and as leaders and equippers, we need to actually dive into some of the stuff as opposed to necessarily retreat from it, because as being as diving into it, we're able to then ask those anchor questions that help build uh, discernment in our people. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, obviously, I do believe that there is power in abstention, right? There are times when sure. we need to abstain or refrain from things. But I think in terms of training our children up, we have to, we have to give them the ability to do that on their own. I can block things for them and help them abstain from things, but I need to help them be able to evaluate things so that they can choose abstention from themselves out of a place of virtue. And, um, and that's really powerful when you have kids who say, you know, I don't want to do that because that erodes my soul. That's the most powerful uh, place that they could be. You know what? This clutter in my life, actually interferes with my relationship with Jesus. Mm. That's what you want them to do is say, I'm getting rid of this stuff because it interferes with my relationship, my walk, my, my, my testimony of Jesus in the world, not because they are afraid of it or, or there's rules against it, but it's coming out of that place of virtue. That's where we want to get uh, our kids to. And that means they've got to learn how to think and navigate about this stuff. It's great. And freedom's tough. And, and Paul was clear, all things are lawful, but not all are edifying. And the way we come to know that is through the kind of discernment that you're talking about. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I guess it starts with us as equippers. Um, for those who are parents, it starts with you sort of doing this in your own life. Um, is what you say, these temper centers, these resilienters, if one of the key markers is they have a meaningful relationship with Christ, where Jesus is a personable figure in their life who's actually impacting and leading their lives, then we need to analyze, is that true for me? Uh, do I have other relationships, a scaffolding, like you called it, of people speaking into my life, helping disciple me who I can emulate? And am I asking myself uh, some of those core questions to develop discernment? And as it becomes more natural for us, I assume it's going to 
you know, be easier to equip our, our people and our children with these, with these tools. You know, any church, any research project that we've done at Barna, where we've asked church leaders how they think their church is doing with discipleship, they all say, we don't think we're doing very good. <laughs> right, right. So nobody, nobody thinks that they're killing on it. So let's just be humble about that. But one thing I would encourage, you know, people listening today is don't just, you know, look for somebody to disciple you. You need somebody speaking into your life, but also look at investing into the life of somebody else. A lot of times we think that we've got to get it all figured out before we start investing in somebody else's life, but that's just not true. We have something to offer people that are um, trying to find their way, and we learn so much from having to give it away and help them. It causes us to go back to the word, to, to really lean into Jesus, to help us. Uh, help that person disciple. So don't shy away and say, well, I don't have the scaffolding. You know, I don't have anybody speaking in my mouth. Um, find those people to speak into your life, but don't feel like you have to wait to a certain point uh, to start investing and in sowing seeds into another person's life. Uh, that can be a very powerful part of the process as well. Because yeah, being yeah. a disciple means making disciples. That's right. And one way we like to say that here is that you mature while you multiply. We don't wait on a certificate or um, accreditation to go multiply that we go do it. And in the doing of it, we learn. And I just try to encourage our people that there's always somebody on your, if you look back in your journey of faith as a road, there's always somebody at some previous mile marker that you were at. I mean, even if you've been a believer for a month, there's somebody who was converted today. Go talk to that person. So I think if we're praying to the Lord to raise those people up, we'll find them uh, without much difficulty. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And if a one-on-one situation doesn't work, find a, a small group that's committed to growing together. Excellent. That you can be a part of that group experience because, uh, you know, we're not alone in this. Um, you know, you're always surprised at how far ahead people are of you in your journey, but there's a lot of people that are further behind and they've experienced some of the same things. And it's really encouraging to be able to take your experience uh, in walking with the Lord and investing that in somebody else's life. Man, really, really powerful stuff. Really um, stuff that's available to us all to start today. So I really encourage that we take your advice. We'll certainly link to the book in the show notes and encourage everybody to grab a copy of that and uh, work through it. Uh, man, it's just really encouraging your work, your research, some of the uh, helpful tips you've given us today and some of the paths you said you know, just start here and then let's see what happens. Just really encouraged and really thankful for you. Hey, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being with you today. And I hope that uh, people will pick up Faith for Exiles. I think there's some really practical things that can uh, be of help from the research that we did. It was eye-opening to us. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for helping our people make disciples every day in the natural rhythms of their life. And anytime you want to come back and talk to this congregation, man, it's, it's available to you. I really, really appreciate your work. Hey, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you today.